Welcome to The Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we delve into the lessons from life in the lockdown, from those who are living it, learning from it, and leading organizations through it. Get on your bike. That might be the message from my guest today, Will Butler-Adams. He's the supremo at the bicycle legend Brompton. Will, now you said to The Telegraph recently that business was quasi-missionary, and you're on a mission with the NHS. Tell us all about it. Well, we're on a mission And we have been on a mission for the last 40 years to change how people live in cities. But there are some funny things going on at the moment. And we had some guys from Bart's Hospital asked us if we could lend them a few bikes from our bike hire fleet because their staff wanted to come to work on bike. They were feeling a bit uncomfortable hopping on the tube. Uh, We lent them 50 bikes. The next thing we knew, they said they had 50 more people who wanted some bikes. Could we get a few more? Then that was 150. Then it was 200. Then we'd literally run out of all of our bikes, the excess bikes that we had from our bike hire fleet. So we thought we've got to go... We've got to keep going. There's demand. We had 400 more people wanting bikes. So we decided that we we needed to get more bikes to the NHS. We're all prepared to to pile in, but we're going through a bit of trauma ourselves. So we needed a bit of help. So we, we reached out to try and get some help from our community and uh, in 20 days raised just over 300 grand, which was completely and utterly awesome. And um, we're making uh, 800 bikes. I think 400 have already gone. We've got another 400 to make. And it's rather cool because anyone who donated over 250 quid gets their name on the bike. So my wife has a bike and my three daughters have a bike and it's quite cool. So they're a little, that's a Bugs BA and a Molly BA floating around somewhere, um, hopefully um, contributing. And you do get a sense that during this crisis that we are seeing some amazing contributions like this. I mean, do, do you get a sense that, there are businesses that are showing the right qualities right now. I mean, do you get a sense that you're one of a community that's getting it? Or do you you think businesses still got a long way to go on this? I think when you're in a crisis, you need to respond to the crisis. That's, in some respects, the more obvious bit. The bit that's difficult is, is, is not over responding to the crisis. So funnily enough, what we've done is, is sort of it's come out in a particular way by quirk of fate and, and lots of other businesses will do the same. And in some respects, that's the easy thing to do because it's so obvious. Everybody's trying to help. We're all trying to help. We've got a flipping crisis. It's inside, right in front of your face. The tricky bit actually for our business has been to keep making bikes, to keep mm. my staff motivated. There's fear everywhere. We've got staff have been stopped by the police. We've got all sorts of other funny things going on. So it's not just about the obvious. Actually, the real leadership comes in the not so obvious. Mm. I mean, I mean, you, you use the word trauma in in your opening remarks, but I mean, in terms of what you see on the front line of your business, in terms of the challenges, I mean, these are very tough days for a, for a global business, I'd imagine. Yeah, but funny enough, we, we, I've been doing daily communications on video to my team because we're so disparate now. You can't really communicate any other way. We've got uh, about 150 of our staff working from home. We've got 75 staff who are furloughed. We've got another 140 staff in, in the factory. And I said to them at the beginning, I said, this stuff that's coming our way is flipping tough. And what we're all thinking about is protecting ourselves from the coronavirus, which is obvious. It's in our face. You turn on the radio. It's everywhere you turn. But I said, guys, what I'm doing is I want to look beyond that. On the day we start this crisis, I want to start thinking about where we're going to be, not in a month, but in six months, in three years, because actually most of my staff are quite young. And actually, for many of them, a bigger risk to their livelihood isn't actually the coronavirus. It's losing their job and falling into a pool with another five million people who've lost their job and not being able to pay the rent. 
and, 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 and letting down the family. And, and that is a bigger risk. So leadership is about not just the obvious and doing what everyone else is doing. It's being prepared to not do what everyone else does and being prepared to take risk. Right. And, and in terms of what that's teaching you about yourself as a leader, I mean, in terms of the, I guess, the new skills, in terms of the courage that you're showing in terms of the decisions you're having to take. How, how do you think you're changing during this kind of, I guess, this first phase, this lockdown phase? I suppose it's just reflecting what we as a business stand for, which is being honest and not believing everything, questioning most things. You know, we have to be able to think for ourselves. And we do that in our design. We do that in how we do stuff. We don't accept what everyone else does. We try to innovate. But even in doing what we feel is right. So we, you know, we're still making bikes. We, we, we agreed that we were going to protect our staff. But until somebody knocked on our door and told us we had to turn off the factory, we were not going to stop making bikes. Because in many cases, particularly with larger corporates, they've become so politically correct, health and safety correct, systematized procedure bureaucracy correct, that the smallest risk, oh, we've got to shut the factory down, 10,000 people made redundant. What we said, my, 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 I said to my team, if we can pull through this, if we can stick together as a team, I don't want to make a single person redundant. That will be success for me. You know, and that is starting with your people. Of course, we will make people redundant if the company's about to go bust. So in, 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 indirectly, you're protecting the business, but you start with your staff. Now, of course, I mean, you've been re rezoned, I believe, in terms of being part of the critical infrastructure. So you're back at you're back manufacturing. But in terms of this debate at the moment, I mean, I, I guess you've you've summarized there this kind of the need to be economically productive, the need to get things going. But of course, equally at the moment, how we keep each other safe is such a huge issue. And responsible employers are going to be increasingly called upon in the weeks and months ahead to be planning, to be doing things very differently um, than perhaps they've done in the past. In terms of how that landscape is going to change, the decision-making landscape, the responsibilities on the leaders of companies, how, how do you see it? But safe, in some respects, that question is, is, is reflecting what I was just saying. You, you, when you say we've got to keep people safe, you're thinking just about coronavirus. That is, that is, that is what you're thinking, but that isn't safe. Safe is every element. Safe is all elements. Coronavirus is one part of the safe, and it's an important part, and it's the one most of us are thinking about. But actually, there are many more elements to safe. I, I've got staff who've got all manner of challenges. They've got challenges in their home life. They've got challenges with many other facets beyond coronavirus and beyond things that we might think are in our field of vision. So the responsibility that I have is to 450 staff in a very complex way. And it's about managing risk. Now, we have done what we can. With hindsight, there are ways we would have done it even better that we made. We didn't get the sanitizer in early enough. We got it in pretty early and then they cancelled our orders. So we ran out. And that made our staff, particularly the people who are in shops, particularly fearful. And we let them down in many respects because we didn't get it there quick enough. But hindsight's a pretty thing. But actually, but ironically, the guys in the shop only had one person or two people turning up a day, but they felt very vulnerable. But then the 150 of us in the factory, many of whom had come by public transport, didn't feel so vulnerable because we were with amongst friends. But actually, mm -hmm. if you look at the facts, the people in the shop were far less at risk 
than the guys because in the country. They were, because they were it, properly socially distanced. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to be able to use the best information available to you and, and interrogate it, bring it back down to earth and try and balance reality and and three to five years because I just fear that this is real. There's no sort of demeaning the, the, the seriousness of what we're going through, but you need to take that in the context of the wider risks and not get sucked into the immediate short-term crisis. You've got to step back, put your head above the parapet and look after all facets as best mm-hmm. you can. And, and of course, you know, with a fair wind, this crisis will move into a new and different phase, which will be about the reopening of the economy and indeed a reopening of our cities and spaces, which may well change very dramatically in the period ahead in a way that may well be very important for your business in terms of the role of the bicycle and the role of the underground and, um, and packed trains. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we... You know, we've been fighting for survival. We've, we've, we've lost, you know, 30% of our staff. We've had 600 shops around the world just closed down overnight. Um, our supply chains all over the shop. And we've been within a whisker of having to just stop the factory because we haven't had enough bits to make stuff. So it's been literally just keeping, taking a day at a time and keeping the show on the road. But interestingly, there is a realization amongst all of us. We thought maybe this is a two or three month thing and then we're all going to be, life's going to be going back to normal. It's becoming very clear to us all that this is a sort of, you know, 18 months to two year thing. And this is going to be a new normal. And and that's making people rethink. And, and, and it's funny, I was chatting to somebody and they were saying, well, you know, why are we going to go um, uh, why aren't we going to go back to what we were before? I said, look, if you have a tiger in a zoo, and the tiger's been brought up in the zoo. The tiger's perfectly happy in the zoo. There it is. It's in the zoo. It's only ever known the zoo. You let that tiger out and you let it leap about in the jungle. And then you say, by the way, do you want to go back into the zoo? They said, not on your Nelly. That's what we've done in our cities. We got rid of the cars. The, the, the air has become clean. We've got NHS queuing up to jump on our bikes. Why? Because mm-hmm. there are clean streets. Because it's safe. There are people out with their children. They're experiencing what a city should be, which is for the people that live in the, it. The tiger is released. I mean, I've, I mean, I've interviewed you before where you've made the point that cities are profoundly, in your view, unhealthy constructs, unhealthy places. In terms of how we get it right for the future, I mean, a lot of the, the technologists I've been interviewing have been saying, well, look, we could get the technology right. We can live in this sort of technologically um, enabled age. Uh, this is what could come out of, of all of this. In terms of what we mean for a city for movement, for a society that might well look at things like fitness and like, you know, uh, lifestyle and well-being in, in very different ways. I mean, lessons to learn, things to start thinking about. What, what's your advice? Well, we're not going to make it perfect because we'll make a whole bunch of mistakes in trying to make it perfect. We just might make it a little bit better. And we know air pollution is, is killing people. We know the, the worst air pollution that we have in many of our cities is in the underground. And forget the mental health issues of, you know, paying money to go under the ground where it's dark and, 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 and grim. I mean, it's bonkers. So there is this opportunity to change how we live in our cities. And a lot of that is really simple stuff. It is the fact that we don't all need to go to work. 
That's good for us. Spend more time at home. Don't spend so much time wasted traveling. We do need to go to work. We need to interact. We need to have physical contact, but certainly not on the level that we needed to in the past. So we can have less people traveling. We can take this opportunity to put in temporary bike lanes. Paris are putting in 650 kilometers. And my bet, most of those will stay. Once you give it to people, they're temporary. But who the hell is going to want to take them out when they get on the bike and take their children? Well, there, there are other cities alongside Paris, Milan, Berlin, others yeah. are all oh, looking at. all over the and, world. And I'm and, pleased to say that Lambeth are investing 75 grand into their cycling. I mean, mm. you sometimes give up the will to live. But anyway, we, 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 we're there, but we are behind the curve and we need to do more. Mm, I mean, and, and in terms of, you know, crises is that they often lead to these moments of reflection and opportunities for change. In terms of how you see it, I I guess some of the decision makers that are going to make some of these choices about how they develop sites in the future, about how government sort of governs, about how business, um, you know, does its work. Do you get a sense that that psyche, that vibe, I mean, all the things that people are now talking about, that they're enjoying spending time with their families. I mean, some obviously are not, but I mean, you know, a lot of people are using technology in a, in a much more productive way. I mean, to what degree are the conditions right to seize the opportunity of change that you're talking about? We need to be too a bit careful that we don't overplay the opportunity because we'll set expectations too high and we'll all be thoroughly disappointed. But there are some flipping, blindingly obvious things that we all ought to be taking advantage of that we know we can do. So in our organization, before this, we probably had probably about 10% of people on average were working of their time was spent working from home, probably less than that, 5% of people. I'm guessing this might not be the most sound statistics. On we've gone from point to ten percent. No, 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 no. I was I was thinking uh, the, it's probably about somewhere between five and ten percent. What we are saying for those of us that work in desk jobs, we want the average to be thirty three percent of their time spent working from home. Some people in our customer service team will only need to come in for one day a week. Others who are in the ops side and production engineering can maybe only work from home one day a week. But on average, 33. Now, what does that mean? I mean, that, that, that means a huge increase in efficiency, less waste traveling to work. It also means that, you know, we just spent quite a lot of money putting in a new mezzanine to have 80 more desks. Well, on the current growth rate, we thought that was going to last us two or three years, which is a bit frightening in itself. But actually, if we implement this, that'll last us five to 10 years. So it's so- way more efficient. So we don't have to congregate in the same way. And presumably that also means that that trust is on the up. That actually, you know, a lot of the reasons why homeworking was discouraged is the idea that, well, actually you can only get productivity and performance if you bring people together. Presumably your, your view is that, that we're learning new lessons. Yeah. In our case, I'm not sure it sort of wasn't trust. It was just rut. We're so busy doing the way we always did it. And this has forced us all to do just the very thing that we're doing now. Um, You know, we've got so many flipping millions of these video conferencing things going on. And in some respects, it's too much because actually I can't spend six hours sitting at my desk peering at a computer. And and I need to go and speak to human beings, sit down and sort of lounge about. But it is demonstrating that there is something different on the other side and it will be different. And you're right, trust has a lot to do with it. Um, But I've always found you know, the vast majority of people trust is such an easy thing. Why people don't trust people and the people you can't trust, you discover so quickly, it's not worth bothering, you know, tiring everyone with the same brush. 
Mm. I mean, I, I've often thought when when we've spoken before is that you're you're a person that shows all the evidence of being frustrated with the the status quo, the established cultures, the sense that things need to change. In terms of the what happens next when the economy opens, how how do we start to get this right above and beyond just the immediate you know things that government will tell us we can do? How do we get this? This culture so we, right in business. There are, it does, in, in the context of the very short term, it needs leadership from government. And at the moment, I think the government are trying very hard, but they are, they need to take risk. And I think that's one of the problems. It becomes very difficult because people are afraid that they might get it wrong. And therefore, you default. And, and, there, are lives, the, and there are lives at stake, right? But there are lives at stake all the time. There yeah. are lives at stake. Yeah all the time. There were lives at stake before this arrived and there'll be lives at stake after it arrives. We're, we're, we're meddling with a very complex web of humanity that includes cancer, it includes suicide, it includes mental health. It's very complex. But defaulting to the safest position based upon the next two-week horizon is, is not leadership. That is blindingly obvious and it's the, it's the easiest choice. So I think as we as we unlock, we are going to need to take some calculated risk and also trust. We need to educate the the population and trust them to understand the risks. We are by and large pretty switched on capable individuals and we need to be given more trust and to, to recognize that this is serious. I think enough of us realize and have, 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 have had people close to us who've, who've had pretty nasty examples of this disease and there are other people who've had nasty experiences where they can't get cancer care or where we know friends who've lost their jobs. So we're not naive to this. So it, it's going to be challenging but it's back to leadership mm-hmm. and it, it is about not pleasing everybody and, 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 right. and taking a bit of risk. So I think you know, you, you've made the point about risk-taking throughout this interview. In terms of how you build some positivity around that, how you see the future, for those that are maybe listening to this and saying, well, you know, I don't want to take risks. I want to, you know, I want to be safe. I mean, in terms of how you dig deep, how you do it, and maybe more in the way of a coping and advice, what would you say to people? It's hard because I am sitting in a position where actually you know, it's, it's, it's hard because our situation is, is, is pretty good. And, 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 you know, relative to so many, I've got friends of mine who were in the hospitality industry who were just absolutely flattened. And there isn't much you can console them with um, because something they've spent 10 years building has just been wrecked. And there just isn't some obvious solution. It's not going to be in two or six months that it's going to be fixed. It's going it, it's, it's, it may never be fixed and they're going to have to start all over again. And, you know, I'm not going through that. And, and I'd, have, I'd be really having to dig deep if I was. So it's, it's easy for me to be glib. But... I think that if nothing else, my general sense of what we have experienced um, going through the last six, eight weeks is it reminds us of what's valuable in life. It reminds us that time is important, that family is important, that half the stuff that we were doing, we're not really missing it. Did we really need it? And actually, the, the fact that we're all together really matters. And we don't need to spend a lot of money to get real special moments of time and, and enjoy ourselves and cherish life. So if we can take some of that out of this in the most general terms, I think we, we have this opportunity to redefine what, what inspires us and, and makes us feel fulfilled. 
Will Butler Adams, thank you very much for joining me on The Changemakers. We've had a straight talking case made for the role of trust, courage and risk in business. I think a lot of people will be challenged with some of those ideas, especially as we go through this particular phase. But there's no doubt about it that a future has to be shaped by action. And I guess informed action has been the message from um, the Brompton leader today. We'll see you for the next edition of Changemakers. It's coming very soon. 